My name is Jeremy Devins, and this is the Yoga Teacher Training Podcast, Episode 57. Things to say to immediately improve your cues. This is a follow-up to last week's episode number 56, where I talked about six common mistakes that teachers make with their cues. And this is all leading up to the new online course, Cue with Confidence, on Saturday, May 15th at noon central time. You can join live or get the recording at quietmind.yoga slash confidence. And there is a special discount for you as a listener if you sign up before April 30th, 2021. If you're listening to this after that, still you can check out the site and get the recording and the online version of the course that you don't need to be there live for. This also counts towards continuing education if you are doing the Quiet Mind Yoga 300-hour certification. So Cue with Confidence is the upcoming course, and today I'll be sharing six of the things that I recommend inside of that course. There's a total of 12 that I teach, 12 main points, and then there's also nine types of cues that I include, and I talk about finding your unique teaching archetype. Maybe you're more motivational, maybe you're more inspirational, spiritual, more practical, maybe more well-rounded, you want to focus on anatomy cues, philosophy cues. All the different ways to approach teaching are all completely valid. There's no one right way, but there is your way. I'm going to help you find that, finding your voice, finding your way of teaching. And I'll be sharing those topics today and over the next two episodes as well, leading up to the Cue with Confidence course on Saturday, May 15th. So to review the last episode, we talked about six common mistakes. Have you made any of these? Using a passive voice, not using trauma-informed language, teaching too fast, requiring students to look at you when you teach, not managing your own state before you teach, and just being overall self-conscious, which we can't really help that one. That just happens sometimes. That's okay. We can't really help some of these if we just aren't aware of them, right? So maybe we didn't learn about them in our teacher trainings, or maybe we learned about them, but we didn't fully pick it up and realize how important it is and learn how to apply it in our teaching and that's what I'll be doing inside of the Q with Confidence course. But today I'm going to talk about just what the things are, what the skills to develop are that you can start practicing immediately. So first of all, rather than using a passive voice when you're teaching, such as inhaling, raising your arms up, exhaling, folding forward, right? The key there is the ING words. And this is a really, really tough habit to break for new teachers and there are still times when I do it and when experienced teachers do it. So you can do it occasionally. It's not a huge deal. But if that's the main way that you're communicating, everything has this sort of passive feel to it rather than being present in the present moment, which is what we're doing in yoga, right? It's samadhi, the state of presence, equanimity in the present moment. Everything about the eight limbs of yoga is leading to being present here and now with the breath, with the body. So we want to do that with our cues as well and with our ways of communicating. So for example, I could say raising your arms overhead, lifting your gaze, folding forward, rounding your back. Right? These are all ING words. Instead, I could say inhale, raise your arms overhead. Exhale, forward fold. Inhale, half lift. Exhale, step back to plank. Right. So that's all very present moment and there's no ING words there. These are sort of putting things into a more passive, not as present kind of feeling to how we're communicating. And this might seem kind of subtle and like, what's the big deal? But if you go to a class and they, they use a lot of these ING words, you'll get that feeling of what I'm talking about, where it's just sort of disconnected from the present moment, 
whereas the more direct active language is only in the present moment. It's much more clear, focusing, clarifying, and keeps you in the present moment. So that's number one, using active language rather than passive language. And again, I'll give lots of examples of exactly how to do that inside of the course. So the next thing is not using trauma-informed language. So instead of not using trauma-informed language, of course, you can use trauma-informed language, but what does that really mean? So that's being mindful of words and how they might be perceived by others and words that could potentially be triggering of past traumatic experiences or abuse that others might have experienced. So a real kind of flippant example is one of my friends, uh, maybe you're listening, Fred, a student I've worked with over the years and went through the teacher training uh, a couple years ago. He's from the East Coast of U.S. So in the East Coast, things are typically a little more blunt to the point, a little bit more abrasive. And he says, you know, this is how I'm going to teach everyone. You're going to listen to me now. Sit down and shut up. Let's start our yoga class. Right. So that's like a really abrasive East Coast kind of yoga approach. And maybe those of you on the East Coast, you actually have experienced that. Uh, but that's sort of not being sensitive to other people's feelings and experiences. But if you can make it a joke, not a big deal. Of course, have fun with it. Where it becomes a problem is when it's not playful at all. For example, I've been in classes where a student is, uh, it's a heated class, it's a very vigorous, challenging class, and a student is having a really hard time, and they're newer to yoga, and they're struggling, and the teacher gives them really abrasive feedback. Like you need to push through it. Don't waste don't waste your time coming here today. Or, you know, like really harsh kind of critical feedback, and basically telling them that they are wrong for what they're experiencing, that they're doing something wrong, that they're not good enough, that they're not measuring up to the other students in class. Right? This is all essentially abusive communication, and that is not what we are doing in yoga. There's no need for that in yoga. It doesn't serve anybody. And some people might actually feel they benefit from more abrupt and abrasive teachers, and that's fine. But in a general public class, that's not what I recommend, that's not what I teach, and that's not what I think is ultimately going to be beneficial for your students in the long run. So rather than that, being mindful of how it might feel to be on the other end of that communication. And that's where it's very important that we've done our own work, right? So if you have for example, like Bikram Chaturai, this is the teacher of Bikram Yoga, the guy who founded that. You might know a little bit about his background that he had a pretty abusive relationship with his mom growing up. She was very harsh with him. And then he brought that way of communicating into everything he does, and it's including the cues that he has his teachers say. Of course, there's a dialogue in Bikram Yoga you might know. It's really a monologue where they, they read a sort of script and they repeat basically what he taught in a class in early 1990s. And they say that almost exact words verbatim to what he wrote in that script. So in that case, you know, he had a lot of unresolved childhood trauma that he was projecting now out to his students. And now I say this, and maybe you are a Bikram teacher, or you know a Bikram teacher. I think a heated Hatha class is a great experience. I've enjoyed it a lot. I've tried it a lot. I used to have a lot of criticisms about Bikram. And then I said, you know what? I'm just going to try this style of yoga and just see what it's like and see what I'm actually criticizing here and realize that I actually really enjoy the slow, heated environment as a someone with a vata dosha, more air and ether element dominant in my body and my mind. So hot and slow really helps ground and focus and energize me. 
too much, of course, it leads to burnout. But I really actually enjoyed the environment. I did not enjoy the dialogue, quote unquote, or the, the monologue, if you will, which is really just a recording of this guy teaching in the early 90s with a lot of very, very poor anatomy cues and a lot of abusive language telling people what to do and what to feel in their bodies. Now, that's my perspective on it. And you might have a different perspective, and that's totally valid. But from my studying of this person and his background, you know, he had a very abusive, neglectful childhood and then brought that forward into how he communicated as a teacher. So it's very important that we as teachers, we are holding space for people in a very vulnerable state where they're listening and following every word we say and physically opening their bodies to us. We want to be very intentional with what we are putting into the room, into the space and how we are managing that sacred, vulnerable state that they are being in, in our, in our presence. So rather than telling someone they're wrong, or they should do something a certain way, or they can't do something, or they have to lock their knee a thousand times like they do in Bikram yoga, which is a terrible anatomic cue, and things like they have to fall over backwards, or like they're getting their hair pulled, or their throat choked, right? If you want to see just the, the sort of template of what not to do as far as trauma-informed communication, just look at the, the traditional Bikram script. And I know some modern uh, Bikram teachers have deviated from that, and that's great, because just doing heated Hatha yoga in itself is great, but having abusive communication to your students is just never necessary. So rather than doing that, rather than projecting our trauma, we want to do our own personal work to resolve our own traumas and abuse as best we can through therapy, coaching, support groups, things like this. As a man, I like the Mankind Project a lot. That's helped me a lot in, in processing my emotions and feelings and, and all that stuff. So if you know men in your life, if you are a man, then Mankind Project's a great resource. Therapy is an excellent resource, of course. And then self-study, Svadhyaya, course, one of the limbs of yoga, one of the practices that we do as yogis is studying ourselves, being aware of ourselves, maybe journaling, uh, self-reflection. So that's sort of the, the big back end of this. This is, you know, deep, deep work. And so that you can be a more clear channel. So you're not seeing somebody, maybe they look like somebody from your past and they trigger a way of communicating that you didn't really realize or intend to. Or they're doing something that you've done yourself and you project onto them, right? So we want to catch these things so we can be a clear channel for our students. And then we find a lot of compassion for ourselves. We find a lot of understanding, curiosity, and empathy for ourselves. Then we give that to our students. So if somebody's struggling with a pose, you rather than thinking, oh, that's supposed to look like this. You're supposed to do this pose like it's supposed to be gymnastics or something. Instead of that, we think, well, I've struggled with the pose before and maybe the same one. And I know what it feels like to be encouraged rather than ridiculed, right? And I'd rather be encouraged rather than ridiculed. And I know what it feels like to process my own trauma and how certain words or feelings or behaviors or approaches can have an effect that re reignites that feeling or reignites that trauma. And now I'm thinking about that and I'm not present in the moment. Or... You know, it's we can't we can't really control if someone is triggered or not or how they react, or that if we do say something as a teacher, that we do give a certain maybe we don't even intend it at all. It's something seems completely benign, like we just 
mention a certain word like a yoga towel. For some reason, that word is triggering to somebody and we can't control that. And it is neutral and we didn't, you know, say something abusive. We just said something that seemed totally harmless and it has a response. Can we hold space for that? Can we be compassionate, kind, and considerate? This is where it's so important as a teacher to have a lot of experience being held in a space by other space holders. For example, counselors, therapists, guides, going on yoga retreats, having great yoga teachers who hold space for you to process your things, even friends to a degree. I'm talking more of a sort of professional relationship where somebody is there in that role of holding space for your process, facilitating for you, rather than maybe like commiserating like a friend could do or colluding like a friend could do or or that sort of thing where it's more of a back and forth, right? We don't wanna bring that kind of relationship necessarily into teaching. It's a professional environment. And in many ways we are holding the role like psychologist, therapist, anatomy teacher, physical therapist, right? Religious teacher, philosopher in some cases. So we hold a lot of energy and play a lot of roles as teacher. So it's very important that we have a sort of reverence for that and respect for the student to be where they're at. And we don't know if maybe today they just want to do a lighter practice. So if we're telling them they need to do more because we saw them do it last week, that's not respecting their practice. So rather than telling them it has to look a certain way or they have to do X, Y, or Z or pushing them, we trust that they have their own inner authority to listen to their body and do what is right for them. And if they do have a reaction to something we say, even if we're just saying everything with good intentions and clarity, that we have compassion, curiosity, and understanding of how that might have impacted them and what they're feeling and how we can improve. And these are the kind of things that you might not hear feedback from a student. They might just never come back to your class or they might say something afterwards or you might notice an emotional response from them. But we can address that in the moment or in our best, doing our best to do our own work before going into the role of teacher and, and throughout our lives and just always doing this personal work so that we are a little bit more clear, a little more intentional, a little more understanding and empathetic for ourselves. And then we can give that to others as well. So the third big thing here is teaching too fast. And this comes down to really oftentimes just being nervous or being a little anxious about the class or maybe thinking you need to fit a lot into a short time if it's a shorter class. So obviously, rather than teaching too fast, just slow down a little bit. And there's this saying that like, if you think you're going too slow, go slower, right? Because oftentimes if you think you're going too slow, then you're just gonna speed it up. So rather than doing that, take a breath, do your own sort of, even just one breath of your own practice to reset and recenter so you're thinking a little clearer you're perceiving a little clearer and you're not rushing through there's nowhere to get to right we're not trying to get somewhere in yoga we're trying to be somewhere which is present just be in the present moment and it might mean you just end up pausing in mountain pose for a couple of breaths right, i taught this one class years ago that still sticks in my memory as with as teaching with one of my mentors or co-teaching this class and we didn't plan it out. We were spontaneous, right? A lot of my teachers taught me to do this, to be spontaneous and present, to not have this exact plan in mind, have an idea, have an outline, have lots of experience to draw from, but not an exact plan. So we didn't have an exact plan and we were just teaching and trading off. Like I would teach a few poses, he would teach a few poses. Then we wound up getting to mountain pose and 
it just felt so powerful in the room. It was the feeling of what, you know, I think Samadhi is as best I understand it. Everything just stood still and everyone felt it. Like when we talked about it after class, everyone felt this same shift of energy where it was like, hold on, we need to stop in mountain pose and just breathe here. There was something that shifted in the room is really powerful and potent. And we stayed there for maybe it was like two minutes. It seemed like a long time. So sometimes when we're teaching really fast, we miss those kind of moments. And that can happen in all areas of our lives. And it's good to notice, does this happen elsewhere in my life where I'm kind of rushing through the day, not appreciating the moment? You know, I have a cat now. She'll slow me down. If I'm like lost on my device for a moment, she'll just walk right in front of my face. And then I can't see my device anymore. So she's saying, hey, hey slow down, be present, come back to the present moment. And when we're teaching yoga, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing we're doing. We're saying, come back to the present moment in this shape. Now let's move to another shape and be present here. And now let's move through a few shapes and be present for each one. And if we lose that presence, okay, what can we do to come back? Maybe it's a slower, deeper breath. Maybe it's noticing something about the alignment. Maybe it's noticing something about the theme of the class. These are the different types of cues that we can include in a class. So there's lots of different avenues to approach. And as teachers, we want to have a wide range of resources to draw from. As newer teachers, you might just have a couple, right? Okay, come back to the breath, right? That works. And at a certain point, you want to have more tools to draw from. Maybe it's holding still in a pose. Maybe it's noticing an anatomical cue, right? All those things I just mentioned. So whatever it is that can help your students and you come back to the present moment. And what we don't want, the number four uh, thing we talked about last week was requiring students to look at you. So this takes them out of their own experience, out of their present moment and into looking around the room, looking outside of themselves. Now, the visual part of our brain, you might know this, is, is uses a lot of processing power of the brain, essentially. So the more energy we're putting to looking around our environment, the less energy we have to be present within our bodies. So of course, one of the eight limbs of yoga is pratyahara, sense withdrawal. So we bring the attention inward rather than looking outward. For beginner students, they do need to see some feedback. They need to see, okay, that's what down dog looks like. Okay, I try this. Okay, does it look like what they're doing? Yes, okay, I got it. But after the first few months, maybe a year or so at most, uh, for a student who's practicing regularly, they don't really need to look around anymore to see the most of the common poses. If they're going to the same class every week, they know down dog, warrior two, high lunge, all these poses. It's like, okay, I got that. I've seen it. I know what it looks like. Now, what does it feel like? And that's the main thing we're teaching is what does it feel like in their bodies? And we don't know, right? So we don't tell them what to feel, but we invite them to notice. We say, notice what you feel here or bring awareness to X, Y, or Z. And we're guiding them through the practice, but we're not telling them what to feel. I often think of this Bruce Lee quote where he talks about how his, his role as a teacher, his job is not to tell students how to perform the moves or what to feel or what to think when they're doing it, but to direct them in that direction to, to, okay, here's the form. Now, what do you notice and what do you feel, right? I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but there's a really good quote like that from Bruce Lee. You might want to look it up. 
Uh, but, but that's an example of this idea of we're not telling them what to feel in the pose or how to do the pose necessarily, but what they anatomically want to do, what they energetically want to do to ideally find their own alignment. We have a general template, right? We all kind of know what down dog looks like, but we don't know what it's going to feel like for them. And it might look a little different for them. So we have the general guidelines and that's where anatomical cues are extremely helpful and then energetic cues and other subtle cues beyond that. But we want to be able to teach in a way where they don't have to look at us. Because every time they look at us, they're going out of their own experience into looking at us. And I had an experience early on in teaching where I would, I would just be practicing along. And this is something new teachers often do. They practice the whole time. And it's essentially, as a student, like I'm going to watch you do your yoga practice. Now, if you're teaching online, this is different. So when I taught in person, I didn't demo really anything uh, in recent years, but now everything's online and I'm recording them for my membership. So I do record, I do practice along while I'm recording because I don't know if there's going to be a complete beginner watching or if it's just experienced students. So there is that. If you're teaching online, you do want to demo, but if you're teaching in person or you know that your students are experienced, it's much better to just watch the students. So I had this experience when I was starting out that I would, I would, I would demo things and then I would look up and see that somebody was doing something completely different. So I realized that my cue was not as good as I thought it was. So I had to find a new way of saying it that they would actually get into the pose without me needing to demonstrate. So that was a great way to learn how to refine my cues by not demoing things. So not requiring them to look at me. And there's other ways you can require students to look at you like saying, raise this arm or step right here, right? So every time you say things like that, they have to look and say, which arm is it? Or where, where is she stepping? So rather than that, you say, raise your left arm, step your right foot to the front of your mat, right? Things like that that are telling them where to step or move in their bodies on their mats. So you want to be able to teach in a way that a blind student could follow you. I think that's the ultimate skill because some students might want to close their eyes when they're practicing. Sometimes I really like to do that. I know a lot of experienced practitioners who do as well. That's pratyahara. You bring your senses inward and you're not looking around. You don't need to look around. You can just close your eyes and move. That's not for everybody, but some people really do like that. And even for the people who want to keep their eyes open, then they don't have to look around anywhere. They can just have a soft gaze. And if they want a visual feedback, if there's something that's not clear, then demonstrate it. And if you're teaching something new or different, you probably want to demonstrate it and cue along with it. But if it's just like high lunge, down dog, you don't need to demo that. If you do at least maybe once or twice in a class at most, but you don't need to demo that after they've got it. You just need to demo the things they don't know yet. And then the fifth thing is not, not managing your state before you teach. So I've touched on this a little bit already, but essentially how we show up is everything to the class. So if I'm extremely stressed out, just got out of traffic, feeling angry, haven't eaten all day, that's a big one. And then I got to go teach a vinyasa class. Right. You've probably been to classes like this where the teacher is like, they're, they're a little aggressive today. What's going on? Uh, and there's like some YouTube videos of the passive aggressive yoga teacher you might have seen. But especially the not eating thing, and especially when we were teaching in studio and a lot of teachers driving around all day, getting to different classes, not having a lot of time for themselves. 
class to class and there's maybe like this two hour gap, not enough time to go get food for whatever reason, right? So then you show up kind of angry and irritable. And then that is the energy that you are putting out into the room and everybody's picking up. So it's very important that you manage your state before you teach. So one of the ways to do that is just to sit down and take a couple of deep breaths. This is what one of my mentors would teach me as well, to just sit when you're teaching and guide everyone else to take some deep breaths. And while they're doing that, you yourself wait until you feel clear. Now, ideally, that just takes a breath or two. And if it's not happening quickly, then you do what you can and you, you go through the class. But you try to manage your state before you get to the mat, before you teach, so that you can be as clear and responsive and present as possible. And the simplest way to do that is just sit down and take a few deep breaths. So much more I could say about this, but I'll leave it at that. And then the final thing is being self-conscious. So obviously this one is very challenging to kind of overcome. Uh, it's A lot of times we are just self-conscious, and I think that's just actually a good sign to a degree. So if I'm worried about a class, I feel nervous about a class, that just tells me that I am at my edge and I'm trying something that's out of my comfort zone by definition. By definition, outside your comfort zone is not comfortable and that is where all the growth happens. So I've, you know, classes I've taught for years and I go to teach those and I sit down and I'm not nervous at all. It's just sort of what I do. It's just like brushing my teeth, right? It's just something that I've gotten really accustomed to. But if it's like a new, completely new offering, right, a new workshop, a new class, then I feel like these nerves again. And that just tells me that, okay, I am trying something new and that's exciting. And I can frame it as rather than that's nervous, I'm afraid I'm going to do bad, I can frame it as I feel a lot of energy. I feel excitement in my body. There's this anticipation, there's anticipatory energy. And I can turn that outward of how can I use that to better serve people? How can I use that to bring my energy and enthusiasm into the class? Rather than turning it inward, which would be, am I good enough? Am I ready? What are they going to think of me? Am I doing this right? Did I say the right thing there? Right? Those are all examples of being self-conscious. So rather than focusing on the small s self, focus on the big s self, the true self, the Atman, the part of us that's aware of our experience and observing our experience that says, you know, this is all just part of our growth. This is all part of our next evolution of what we're learning and growing and how we can serve others. And then focus on being other conscious, being service conscious of how can I serve through this class? How can I use this energy to be of better service to my students? And always when we put our attention on others, it sort of erases the small s self, the ego in a way. You've probably experienced this if you've ever volunteered before. As Gandhi would say, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in service to others. So when we're being self-conscious, we're focusing on our ego, our small self. What do people think of me? Am I good enough? Will they accept me? Am I lovable? Am I likable? All these things that essentially are terrible questions to ask. Rather than asking any of those questions, if any of them come up, just ignore them. They're really not helpful. What's more helpful is how can I be a better service? How can I help? What's something I know that they might not know that might be helpful to them? What's something I wish I knew 10 years ago that I can share with them now? And you focus on those kind of questions, it makes everything a lot easier. And if they're in a pose and you're not sure what to say, what's something a teacher said to me that was helpful? 
what's a frame of philosophy for a class that was helpful? Did you go to a class and someone said, what's your intention for today? And you found that helpful? You might want to include that in your class. If you like to set intentions for your class, you can include that. So rather than being self-conscious, be service conscious. Now, there's a lot there. Hope this is helpful for you. I'll go into six more common mistakes and suggestions of how to work with those in the upcoming workshop, Q with Confidence, live on May 15th on Zoom at noon central time. You can get a discount if you sign up now this week. So you just got a couple of days left to sign up with the discount, and then the price goes up after May 1st and you'll get the recording and access to the online course. If you're listening to this afterwards, you can still join us. And this also counts towards continuing education credits if you're working towards a 300-hour certification with Quiet Mind Yoga's online teacher training. So as always, thank you for listening. I look forward to sharing more with you next week where I'll talk about the different types of cues to include in your class. So it's all in the cue framework here over the next couple episodes, talking about cues because it's such an important aspect of teaching. It's probably the most important aspect of teaching. So I look forward to sharing more with you next time on the Quiet Mind Yoga Teacher Training Podcast. And if you enjoy this, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It means a lot. And subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.